Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa Buddhang tamang sanghang namasami So the uh, theme for the afternoon's talk this week is Let the Chitta Paint a Picture, uh, Poetry and Art in uh, Dhamma Practice. So I brought some artwork along to, to pass around to uh, help illustrate the, uh, uh, the um, offering today. Though the... Uh, uh, the summer has been proceeding, we're now into autumn, so we just have uh, uh, another three of these Sunday afternoon talks to go before the rains retreat uh, comes to an end. And uh, my name is on the schedule for these, uh, the talk today, the next couple, so I hope, hope it works out like that. So the, uh, the theme for today uh, is exploring this uh, area of uh, artistic expression in terms of, of Dhamma practice and uh, this area of, uh, say, the, uh, um, the, say the, the area of our lives, the area of our sort of religious study and, uh, and inspiration. The, um, uh, reflecting on this theme, I, I didn't uh, write this title, somebody else suggested it, and I thought, okay, I'll put my name by that one because uh, it's uh, a, an area I've um, been involved in to some degree in, in the past and I thought it would be interesting to explore. Uh, one of the things when we talk about poetry uh, or art in terms of, of Dhamma practice, most of us in the West think of practicing the Dhamma as, uh, say, studying um, the, uh, the scriptures uh, or uh, going on meditation retreats, and um, we don't really think of, uh, of artistic expression very, much, very closely involved with, with Dhamma. But if you look at the scriptures, there's... Uh, uh, there's a lot of poetry there. And so first of all, I thought I'd talk about uh, this one particular monk called Vangisa, who was uh, uh, a monk in the, in the time of the Buddha, and he had been a professional poet before he became uh, a monk. In his own uh, verses describing his, um, uh, uh, his, sort of his life or his perspective before meeting the Buddha and uh, getting uh, into the monastic life, he... Uh, he describes it as uh, drunk on poetry. I wandered around from village to village, from town to town. That uh, he was absorbed in that world, and so even though we might think that uh, dhamma poetry might be something that's an aspect of the modern age, it's, it's very far, very far from it. And uh, so, uh, in uh, the scriptures, there's actually a whole section of the connected discourses uh, about Vangisa, and. Uh, very often in those uh, those discourses, those uh, dialogues, then Vangisa declares, um, uh, "An inspiration has occurred to me, Venerable Sir." To the speaking to the Buddha, to, "Oh, uh, an inspiration has occurred to me, uh, Blessed One. An inspiration has occurred to me, uh, uh, O Fortunate One." Speaking to the Buddha, and then the Buddha doesn't say uh, to Vangisa, uh, "Stop it with the poetry, Vangisa. Get on with your practice." <laughs> uh, rather, he says. Uh, uh, well, give your inspiration expression, Vangisa. 
That's what he said. Okay, speak up. What is what is it that you've uh, that your your mind has come up with? So right there, you have the Buddha actually encouraging uh, one of his disciples to get poetic. That's that's the medium that Vangisa is familiar with, and so the the Buddha says, okay, give your give your inspiration expression, Vangisa. And also uh, in one of those exchanges, it's it's uh, section eight of the um, connected discourses, the Vangisa Sangyutta. In one of them, the Buddha asks Sangisa, "So, did you uh, did you think these verses through beforehand? Had you had you worked out these this poet these these poems before, or did they occur to you spontaneously?" And then Vangisa said, "Oh, well, that, this occurred to me spontaneously." And then the Buddha said, "Okay, let something else, let some more poetry occur to you spontaneously." And so he comes up with a, a few more verses, and so that uh, I think it's uh, it's important to recognize the Buddha uh, encouraged that and was quite supportive of that, but also, even more importantly, that uh, there's a lot of the scriptures that is the Buddha's own spontaneously created poetry. So the, the whole of the Dhammapada, uh, these are poems written by the Buddha. Uh, the Suttanipata, these whole uh, co- uh, collections of the Buddha's teachings, they're in poetic form, and seemingly, apparently, they were all uh, poetry that was made up by the Buddha on the spot. That he didn't just sort of sit in his cootie thinking, how do I find a rhyme for that? You know, that rather, the, it was a, it was a, a kind of um, a training, an art form that existed in the Buddha's time, spontaneous versifying, spontane- creating spontaneous poetry. And the Buddha was particularly good at it. And so that... Uh, it's not just others around in the Buddha's time, someone like Vangisa, who was known as the, sort of the great poet of the Sangha, but the Buddha himself. And that uh, the uh, say a collection of teachings like the Dhammapada, which is uh, uh, probably the most widely uh, quoted uh, section of the, of the scriptures that we have in uh, the Theravada, the Southern Buddhist tradition, that was all poetry that the, the Buddha composed. So... Uh, when we um, recite the, these verses, like we do, um, say, like this morning, as we recited the Karaniya Metta Sutta, the Buddha's words on loving kindness in Pali. That's a poem that the Buddha wrote, uh, you know, two and a half thousand years ago. So we uh, uh, translated that into English, and uh, so probably many of you are familiar with that, both in the Pali or in the, the English. Uh, this is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness and who knows the path of peace. Uh, and uh, and so on. That uh, that is a uh, 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 an aspect of poetry, uh, a form of of expression that has come down to us, and is a way of encapsulating uh, the uh, the teachings. So that rather than thinking of poetry as some sort of just something that's kind of frivolous or, or um, uh, extra. Uh, a lot of the core teachings uh, are in that form, or the Sutta Nipata, uh, which is uh, more, uh, even more extensive in size than the, the Dhammapada. It's a, it's a poetic uh, creation. So that uh, uh, when we reflect on this area, you know, poetry and uh, an art in, in Dhamma practice, then I think it's, it's good to, to see that this is kind of, uh, it's there within the medium right, right from the, the, the very beginning and that it's something that is, uh, say, a, a means of conveying the teaching. Also with um, uh, Pali poetry, I'm not a Pali scholar and uh, it, it's not my, my territory at all, but uh, it, uh, speaking with um, Bhikkhu Bodhi, who's an American monk and very accomplished uh, and uh, experienced 
translator of Pali into English, uh, him uh, uh, speaking to us about Pali poetry, he says it's, it's very difficult to translate because the way that the the words are put together, and just like within uh, within say English poetry, sometimes the words are sort of joined together, or you have very archaic expressions or weird word orders to make the the rhythm of the sounds work. Um, so it's just the same in Pali, and so the so translating Pali poetry can be can really really hard work. In fact, he said when he was asked to do the um, the Sanghutanikaya, the connected discourses, when people said, "Could you translate this into English?" He deliberately didn't start with the first two, the first two books, the uh, the Deva Sangyuta, the Deva Puta Sangyuta, because it's it's almost all poetry. He said, if I'd started with those two books, I would never have finished, but uh, because it's just it's such hard work, it's so difficult. And if you look at his translation, the notes for those uh, for the translation of the Pali poetry, they go on for pages and pages and pages, <laughs> discussing exactly how he chose a particular formulation. So he said he, he translated all of the prose material first, so he'd done so much he couldn't back out. Yeah, so, so, so by the time he got to, the, all that was left was to do the poetry, then he said, okay, well, I have to do it now because I've done 95% of the rest of, the, of this whole 2,000-page collection. I, I, can't, I can't back out now. But he deliberately uh, chose to, to leave it till the end because it was, it was so challenging. So uh, uh, in this respect, then, I, I feel that, that um, uh, you, th this, uh, say, form, even though it's not very common in the, in the Western world, or it's something that's seen as a bit, um, uh, say, supplementary, uh, that it's, a, it's very much a, a part of our tradition and the way of, uh, of speaking. Um, similarly, the, um, and not just in terms of, of poetry, but also uh, storytelling. So we might not think of of the Pali canon as having a, a, a lot of stories. The Buddha uses many similes, but it's not, um, uh, we might not think of it as a, a, a medium of much storytelling. Mm -hmm. But um, what you have, particularly in the collections like the, the Jataka stories and the Dhammapada commentary, there's a, uh, which were uh, put down into, uh, into written form uh, later after the Buddha's time so that they're, they're not in the such uh, repetitious form as you find the suttas. They're much more sort of narrative and the, the language is much more varied. You find an incredible uh, richness of, uh, of stories there. And so I've uh, uh, learned a lot going through the, the Jataka stories and the Dhammapada commentary. And again, um, most people who are interested in meditation or in the essential teachings of the Buddha, I say, you read the Jatakas, really? If I, and it's quite common if, I, if I'm talking with other Westerners, they say, you've actually read the Jatakas? And I said, yeah, I read all of them. Like, what? Really? Like, all of them? I said, yeah, from beginning to end, I read all of them. They go, seriously? Um, and uh, similarly, the, the Dhammapada commentary, people like, do you bother with all that stuff? But I, I find for myself that uh, there's a great uh, richness and value, there's a lot there in these uh, these stories and it, and it seems as though that out of the buddhist tradition uh, a lot of the the material that you get in those particular collections the jatakas uh, the stories of the buddha's previous lives and the the dhammapada commentary is a sort of um collection a, a sort of um compendium of indian folklore of the, of the Buddha's time and before the Buddha's time, they've taken a lot of those ancient stories and then put Buddhist characters into, into them. 
and uh, come down to us uh, and uh, part of our inheritance. Just as in later years, um, the Aesop's fables from Greece or, or La Fontaine's uh, fables from uh, uh, in Europe, they've sort of inherited stories from before and from different generations, uh, many many generations, and the same stories with different characters woven into them have been uh, have been passed along, and so that uh, that. Um, I feel is a uh, very, um, uh, you know, very useful and uh, say relates to our lives. And the reason why these stories get passed on, like uh, the stories of of uh, Greek myths or Roman myths or Egyptian mythology or Norse mythology, is that these these stories they they have a relevance. They map onto our lives. They can be something that is is relevant and and valuable to us. And that they they are things that we can uh, can relate to. So, um, uh, and then thinking of, the, of this theme for, for this afternoon, I, I wondered about the, um, the how much to, to be reading different material for you. But I thought I, I might give um, give some examples. So, also within the scriptures, along with uh, um, Vangisa as a poet, uh, and the, with the Buddha's own poetry, like in the Dhammapada or the um, uh, the. Um, uh, the Suttanipata, uh, you have two other whole collections, the Terigata, the verses of the enlightened nuns, and the Terigata, the verses of the enlightened monks, which is, again, it's all in poetry, and it's like the these um, uh, great elders of our tradition telling their own life stories, but a lot of it is in poetic form, and there's, there's a, sometimes a bit of narrative as well that gives a background, but a lot of what... Um, their own sort of uh, summarizing of their lives or the the, the main uh, lessons that they learnt is all in poetic form. So that is they put into that uh, structure as a way of carrying the the meaning and carrying the the flavor of it. So uh, there's many different um, say sources for this. Uh, in in English, you have as uh, a, a collection called the the, um, the Great Disciples of the Buddha by Helmut Hecker, uh, which has a lot of very good uh, stories and uh, some of the poetry in. And then this is um, called The First Buddhist Women by Susan Murcott. This is a, a translations and commentary on the Terigata, the verses of the enlightened nuns. So just as one example, uh, this is uh, the verses of Patachara, who was uh, one of the, the great uh, enlightened nuns. She had, as a, la uh, as a lay person, her husband and her two children had all died in tragic circumstances. And then she had uh, had met the Buddha. Uh, she was of, uh, after the losing her family uh, in a very so sudden and tragic ways. She was very distressed and distraught. And she uh, met the Buddha and and went forth as a nun. And then she was uh, then talking about her her struggles, her effort uh, to uh, to work with her mind, to train herself, and how the the, the liberating insight arose. So these are her verses as translated into English. When they plough their fields and sow seeds in the earth, when they care for their wives and children, young Brahmins find riches. But I've done everything right and followed the rule of my teacher. I'm not lazy or proud. Why haven't I found peace? So she's sort of recounting her own internal process, like, you know, uh, People work the land, they, they make their efforts and they get their results. And I've been working hard as a nun. I've been trying to train my mind. How come I haven't arrived at, at uh, peacefulness yet? Then she describes this incident. Bathing my feet, I watched the bathwater spill down the slope. 
I concentrated my mind the way you train a good horse. Then I took a lamp and went into my cell, checked the bed and sat down on it. I took a needle and pushed the wick down. When the lamp went out, my mind was freed. So just uh, in that way, taking this sort of uh, uh, pivotal event, this sort of central event of her life, of both uh, her going forth, her struggles and her frustration, yeah, yeah, how come they do their work, they get their results, how come I'm working really hard, I haven't got my results, so talking about her own struggle, and then uh, also then the moment of realization, just something simple like you know, coming back to her kuti and washing the mud off her feet with a, with a dish of water, washing the watching the, the water flow down the, down the slope, then uh, going into her kuti and then just putting, a, putting out the candle, using a, a needle to douse the, the flame, and then the flame of the candle going out, then her mind being released from uh, greed, hatred, and delusion. So the, uh, uh, again, if you're interested in, in um, Buddhist poetry and uh, such like, then... Uh, those verses of the, the enlightened uh, monks and nuns are, are very rich. Uh, they tell a lot of, of the stories, the backgrounds of different people. And this um, um, book of Susan Murcott's is particularly good. It's very readable uh, poetry. Sometimes the translations into English of the poetry, they try to be very accurate, but they are kind of unreadable as poetry. <laughs> they might be sort of true to the Pali, but they're like, they're, it's, it doesn't really make the heart sing. So sometimes the... Uh, uh, the 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 real meaning and the flavor of the poetry is lost in the um, uh, the effort to be to be accurate and so it's uh, as Bhikkhu Bodhi was saying translating Pali poetry is, is really tough because uh, it's it, it needs to also carry the the flavor the spirit of it as well as the um, the kind of uh, the being true to the the meaning and uh, also to to work as poetry. The um, uh, in the um, in the stories of the the Jataka and the uh, the Dhammapada commentary, there uh, again, I thought, well, what's what stories might uh, I, one recount or, or think of that in terms of of one's uh, uh, say one's own life or experience? And uh, a couple that came to mind: the, the commentary. For the the verse that uh, Ajahn Sumedho would often quote uh, when Amravati was first opened and was almost like a, a motto for Amravati is mindfulness is the path to the deathless, heedlessness is the path to death. The mindful never die, the heedless are as if dead already. And the the, the commentary, the, the background story to that, that sort of four-line verse is extremely long. And um, uh, I'll talk a bit more about it later on uh, uh, this afternoon. But uh, it tells a story of uh, uh, Queen Samavati, uh, who was uh, the, the queen of King Udena in the kingdom of, of Vangsa. And uh, the, uh, the, uh, the king was also um, married to uh, another woman called Magandia. And Magandia became, was very jealous of the prominence that Samavati had. And so, um, <clears throat> cut a long story short, a very long story short, <laughs> At a certain point, then uh, then Magandia conspired to to lock uh, Queen Samavati and all of her her court women in the in a pa- in the palace to seal the doors closed and then set the whole place on fire. And then, um, as they are burning to death, 
then uh, Queen Samavati, who was a very de dedicated disciple of the Buddha, then the encouragement that she gives to her, her companions, her friends, as the place is filled with, with smoke and burning, she says, you know, you know, be mindful, don't, don't, uh, don't wobble. Um, uh, whatever the reason is that we're, that we're in this situation, we can't escape from it. Um, so uh, don't, let, don't let yourselves get uh, caught up with distress or anger or hatred, but uh, focus your attention on the, the present moment. So it's a very dramatic and uh, colorful story, and it seems to be uh, based in historical fact. As far as one can tell, there's a lot of corroborating stories from, from that time. And so that you have you know, one little four-line verse from the Dhammapada, and this is huge, long, long story, the whole story cycle of King Udena that, um, uh, that, that backs it up. And then that is, uh, say, uh, uh, something that really uh, gets your attention, uh, imagining that uh, whole a large collection of people being, uh, being burnt to death and the, the, the readiness to focus the attention, even in such a horrific and frightening and painful situation, to focus the mind and to, to not harbor hatred or aversion or feelings of, of anger or revenge and such like. And, so, and in that, uh, as the Buddha says, you know, heedlessness is the path to death. The mindful do not die. So the bodies might, might die, but if the mind is focused on on the, the deathless as the mind is, is awakened to the qualities of transcendence, then even though the, the life comes to an end, the, the heart can be, uh, can be liberated uh, and uh, the deathless can be realized. Again, there's a lot in that, uh, that story, but uh, it's a, um, a way of illustrating in a very memorable and powerful fashion that kind of, um, of uh, say, uh, 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 a background story that, that sort of in, informs or illustrates or colors that kind of um, uh, as a, uh, that theme. So it can sound a bit abstract, abstract or something remote. You know, mindfulness is the path to the deathless, heedlessness is the path to death. It can sound a bit philosophical, but then if you bring to mind the, this, uh, this whole sort of tragic story and the, uh, the kind of um, uh, the image of that uh, that occurrence and the the single mindedness of the people being ready not to not to get caught up in panic or fear or aversion or anger, then it's oh that's seriously mindful that's <laughs> that's uh, seriously uh, seriously heedful. Also, in terms of artwork, um, again, there's there's a lot I could have talked about in this respect. Uh, it, it's not so much spoken about in the, the Pali canon, but the um, the tradition, uh, the, the the stories come down to us that uh, the uh, the Buddha's second disciple Mahamogalana was extremely gifted in psychic powers. He could uh, move between different realms of existence, and he would often go off and visit different heavenly realms or the ghost realms or hell realms or different different realms of existence. And he'd come back and tell stories to the Sangha of the places where he'd been and the different things that, that he'd seen in those realms. And so that uh, probably uh, most of the people who are gathered here today, we've seen pictures of the, uh, the, the six realms or sometimes the five realms. You have a a large circular form, and it's sort of divided up into five or six sections. It's held up by Mahakala. The the uh, the um, Kala is time. Mahakala is means great time. So it's this uh, this this uh, this great powerful entity holding up this 
this circular form, and it's actually a mirror. The, the symbology of it is that that's a mirror that is being held up, and that the, uh, the, the six divisions are the deva realm, the, uh, uh, the realm of the of devas, of the, the, uh, the, go- the heavenly realms, the realm of the asuras, the jealous gods, uh, the human realm, the animal realm, the uh, realm of the hungry ghosts, the, the petas, and then the hell realms, the niraya. And so that according to the stories, uh, as it is told, then uh, the, uh, the, uh, the Buddha said to, to Mahamogalana, you should paint a picture of this, uh, these realms, and then uh, this uh, picture of these, these six realms should be placed above the gate of every monastery, so that then uh, when people come and go to the monastery, they will, uh, they will be able to reflect upon their, uh, their existence and the, the way that the, the wheel of birth and death turns and the different realms of existence that, uh, that living beings are, are subject to. So uh, that story you find not just in the southern Buddhist world, but also in, the, in Tibet, in China, and uh, northern Buddhist world. And so whether the Buddha actually said that to Moggallana or not, <laughs> one doesn't know, but certainly uh, we have the stories of, of Mahamoggallana visiting the different realms. And that uh, image that we have of, the, of Mahakala holding up the, the, the mirror and the 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 six realms, sometimes there's five realms, sometimes the asuras are left out, which they're even more annoyed about. You know, the asuras are the kind of the jealous gods. They kind of, they feel like they're being left out. The devas get all the prizes and they get all the, they're kind of all beautiful and, and they get all the praise and the asuras are like, what about us? You know? <laughs> so it's something even, uh, another thing to be annoyed about. Uh, they're getting left out of the, of the collection of realms. But uh, so that's a very ancient image, and so you find that in Thailand, you find it in Sri Lanka, you find it in, in Burma, in China, in Tibet, Japan, Korea. It's a slightly different forms, but that same that same image, and that uh, seemingly that comes from the, from the time of the Buddha, and is a a a, a way that um, a teaching was conveyed, and so that uh, you also find. Um, that's uh, often in t- temple paintings, um, the uh, the stories of the the, uh, the Buddha's previous lives, uh, or the uh, uh, or the this wheel of birth and death, the Bhava Chakra, uh, the wheel of becoming, is they're depicted on the on the walls of temples and such like. So that uh, in pre-literate societies, societies where people can't read, uh, then those pictures they convey a story. So that you often will have. Um, um, say particular uh, tales from the Buddha's previous lives, uh, from the Jataka stories. You would have um, stories uh, from the life of the Buddha, his uh, birth in Lumbini and as a Bodhisatta, and uh, then the enlightenment under the Bodhi tree, or him sort of starving as a, a yogi, being very very thin, and skinny, and and then the different encounters he had, say like being. Uh, um, uh, attacked by the uh, the runaway elephant Nalagiri, or um, teaching Angulimala, the, the the bandit leader who uh, became a disciple of the Buddha, and so forth, and the um, images of the Parinibbana, the Buddha lying down under the the trees in the Kusinara, and so forth, so that the uh, the temple paintings would be a, a way of of say, conveying those stories and helping them be be brought to mind. So 
so it's, I would say this uh, area of these areas of poetry and artwork are very much part of our, our Buddhist tradition. In uh, other, in some countries, particularly in Japan, then the the uh, again I'm not a, an art historian, but I would say that uh, in the northern Buddhist world. Uh, in, say, in particularly in Japan, but also in China, Tibet, and Korea, where the climate is is not quite so hot and sticky, <laughs> where paper lasts longer, uh, then uh, there's more of a, uh, a a literary tradition or the artwork that was created a few hundred years ago has actually survived. In countries like Sri Lanka or Thailand or, or Burma, um, Laos and Cambodia, it's very hot and steamy, so anything that's on, uh, say, palm leaf manuscripts or on anything like paper gets destroyed by mold and, and uh, termites and uh, doesn't last very long. In the northern countries, it's a bit cooler, and they had uh, paper printing and, and uh, artwork on paper or on, uh, on print, in printed forms or, or had been, uh, uh, say, not just painted on temple walls or, or chiseled into stone would last a lot longer. So you have more of a, um, like a uh, say artistic tradition has carried down over the centuries from the, the northern Buddhist world. But I would say it's very much a part of uh, that, the, the Buddhist life, of putting particular experiences and, uh, and symbols of the teachings and ways that are, are of practice that are, are useful to us. Putting principles into, uh, into artistic form is something that is, is very... Um, Say, uh, say, fundamental to us as, as human beings, and uh, and it uh, is a way of carrying on a, an insight and understanding a particular vision across time. When uh, Ajahn Chah came to visit England, uh, came, uh, came to the UK uh, first time in 1977, part of that that trip, he went up to Scotland, and he was uh, staying with. Um, Julia Wilkinson, a, a, a student of, of Ajahn Sumato up in uh, in Edinburgh, and there um, was uh, during that that visit to Edinburgh, then uh, Julia had a, a large um, scroll painting of uh, Bodhidharma, who was the uh, the say the first patriarch of the the Chan tradition, who took uh, according to the stories, took originally took Buddhism to to China. And it was a, a very kind of dramatic uh, scroll painting that was quite quite old. And um, Ajahn Chah had never seen anything like this before in his life. And uh, according to, I wasn't there, you know, I, was, I, was, uh, I wasn't around at that time. But uh, according to Lumpur Sumedho, Lumpur Chah was doing walking meditation in front of this painting of Bodhidharma. And we just sort of walk, walk across the room and then walk up and stand in front of it and look. And this kind of wild-eyed, uh, bearded yogi, uh, and we kind of look, stare, and then turn around, walk back, and turn around, walk back, and stand in front of the of the painting again. And it was quite plainly there was a, there was a sort of a dialogue going on <laughs> across the centuries. I'm not sure when that that painting had been done, but it was uh, uh, quite old. But also coming down as a those sort of paintings of Bodhidharma as a very sort of powerful dynamic. Uh, uh, as a carrier of the the lineage from from India into uh, into China, I think actually according to the legends, Bodhidharma was originally from Afghanistan, and uh, had but had trained in India and then went to, went and took the the lineage to to China, and so that that there was a, a painting, and here's Ajahn Chah, you know, coming out of the the Southern Buddhist tradition and meeting this 
this kind of uh, uh, say the um, the message that came through that picture and the form that was there you know, across across time and across the uh, uh, the distances of when that was that painting was originally created. Um, uh, I think it was a Japanese one think, uh, created in Japan and then coming to to the UK and then having that effect upon him and and, and then um, again as I remember uh, Lumpur Sumedho saying Lumpur Chah said who is this <laughs> T- tell me tell me yeah tell me what, what who this is supposed to be and so on so in terms of painting pictures I thought I brought a few uh, examples along to pass around of, of a modern age um, creator not this is not mine but I thought we could pass around so this is um one for each side of the room. Um, so, uh, in our current age, even though there might have been great inspired painters and artists of uh, previous ages, um, in our current age, um, similarly, people trying to convey certain um, spiritual messages and uh, inspired by the teachings and putting ink on paper um, for the future generations. Then uh, at uh, Chittavivekananda Monastery, Chittas Monastery, uh, Ajahn Tita Dhammo, who's uh, about 80 years old now, he is um, he was a, a, an artist before he became a monk, like Vangisa, you know, who was a poet before he became a monk. Ajahn Tita Dhammo was a professional artist, and then coming into the sangha, then um, rather than saying, "Okay, you're a monk now," you know, put away your pens. <laughs> there was a, also a, a, um, that that kind of spirit uh, interest to express what he was experiencing, what he was seeing, putting that into form, and then uh, passing that on for, for people to see. So these are just a couple of, of examples of his, his, uh, his artwork. Um, this isn't the only kind of Buddhist artwork, uh, obviously, but it's, a, it's a, say, a, a unique expression, and I feel that each age, each culture, has its own way of, uh, of speaking, of putting things into, into form. And um, and so for myself, before I was a, a uh, uh, before I came into the sangha, before I was a monk, I also used to uh, draw pictures, paint pictures, used to write poems, and uh, I had uh, uh, the idea of one day becoming a, a, a writer. And, uh, and that, it just also, <laughs> I've also produced a number of books over the years. So one of them, one of the early ones, is this one called Silent Rain. And there's a, uh, a particular talk in here that's called The Source of Creation. Um, and uh, so <clears throat> I'm also not aiming just to blow my own trumpet today. But this, this talk is called the, the Source of Creation. So, and there's a, a, one of my pictures there at the front of it. <laughs> so um, the, uh, uh, in that, I tell a, a little story about how when, uh, when I was a layman, I had this, uh, these sort of fantasies. I was a student at London University. I was doing a science degree, uh, psychology and physiology. I didn't really like science very much. I, was much more, I felt much more inclined towards uh, poetry and literature and, and art and so on. But I got sort of shunted into doing sciences because I was good at that. Um, and so anyway, uh, I had this, these uh, ideas. I want to be a great writer. I want to be like Kafka or Rambo or one of these kind of inspired people up in it, starving in a garret, but, uh, you know, not starving so badly that, you, you know, you can't actually hold a pen, but uh, starving enough to be kind of romantic. Uh, 
but um, still capable of producing great works. And anyway, so, so uh, during that time, I was about 19 or 20 years old, and I remember sitting down with a, with a, a notebook and and okay now so this is this is I've got some time now what do I want to say you know okay I want to be a writer so you know if you're going to be a writer you've got to write something <laughs> kind of goes with the territory um, so then uh, uh, so I remember sitting there and thinking I haven't got anything to say <laughs> I I really haven't got any who, and who am I talking to oh. <laughs> That was quite a, 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 an insightful moment in its own peculiar way. I said, oh, I, I have the idea of being a writer, but what do I know about? What do I want to say to anyone? What, what have I got to say that's worth hearing or reading? Oh, and there was this large blank. And so I uh, quite consciously just let go of that idea because rather than so wanting to be a writer for the sake of being a writer or having that sort of a reputation as a, you know, as a journalist or a novelist or whatever, that uh, I thought, I will, I will wait until I've got something to say, and then perhaps uh, it'll be worth saying. And so that, that was quite uh, uh, a, a helpful turning point for me. I also, at the, uh, uh, around that time, um, uh, then, uh, and reflecting on that, I came across what I call the, the Roy Jenkins effect, so some of you uh, will remember Roy Jenkins was a, a British politician and he was one of the original founders of the um, Social Democrats Party and uh, he was the Home Secretary at a certain point. Uh, anyway, he, uh, <clears throat> he was also he was, uh, quite a, a well-known academic. He was the um, Chancellor of Oxford University at a certain point. I think he was being interviewed because he'd, he'd written a, a biography of Churchill or, or some substantial book of his was, was published. And the interviewer asked him the question, do you have any disappointments in your, in your life? Um, is there anything that you would have liked to have achieved that you, that you didn't? And he said, well, you know, if you're in politics, and everyone who goes into politics in this country has the idea that they would like to be the prime minister one day. I'm not mentioning any names, but um, they, 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 that's normal. So, so, so of course I had the idea, I'd like to be PM one day. And then I realized, I didn't actually want to be prime minister. I wanted to have been prime minister. <laughs> I thought, thought, well done, Mr. Jenkins. You know, I thought that that's uh, because there's in terms of poetry or art or literature that sometimes the idea of it or the idea of having your name attached or the sort of the the feeling that goes along. We we want to have that feeling as being known as that or having a reputation as that or being good at that, but. Um, that uh, I felt was was very insightful of Roy Jenkins realizing that that uh, uh, what was he was interested in was just having the reputation, having had the achievement, but he didn't actually want to lead the country. <laughs> and so, in a in a strange way, that was also connected with the, for myself for the, the area of of create, uh, creativity. And so that if you got and so in, instead of trying to be something or known as somebody who who writes or paints or is a poet, then rather, well, if something needs to be said or something needs to be created, okay, you know, do the creation, but whether somebody likes it or not, or whether they, whether they make something out of it or not, that's their business. You don't have to make that the focus of, of what you do and why you do it. And so uh, what I found in coming into the Sangha, I had no intention of, 
of uh, um, writing poetry or drawing pictures or, or even writing uh, uh, you know, writing books. And uh, you know, I've got quite a few to my name you know, now uh, over the years. But uh, what I found was, if there, it's, it, as long as it's driven by the need for something to be said, or that there's a, a cause for for something to be produced, then there there's a, a lot that can come forth. People say, "Oh, you know, can you do an article for the newsletter?" Or that, "Oh, you just did this this uh, trip uh, with uh, Lumpur Samedo. Can you can you write about it?" Or you, you know, or when I did a a long walk through England in 1983. Oh, you're going on this this long Tudong walk from Chithurst Monastery up to Northumberland. Well, you you are going to keep a diary, aren't you? I said, well, I wasn't thinking of it. Well, you must. You've got to keep a diary. You have to. You've got to keep a diary. So that became the first book that I wrote. It was called The Long Road North. Was because somebody said, you've got to keep a diary. I thought, okay. <laughs> and then. Um, uh, a lot of the, the 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 drawings that I put in here, um, they are pictures from, uh, say, uh, articles that uh, people say, oh, we need an article for the newsletter, or we're producing the, the Rainbows magazine. Uh, we, we need some drawings. You know, the the the, the, the nun who was going to do the pictures, she's gone off to somewhere else. So we haven't got an artist. Can you do some drawings? We're we're printing next week. You know, <laughs> and so that. Uh, I said, okay, well, what, what are they, give me the articles and I'll, I'll produce some pictures. And what I found was that rather than, than uh, staring at a blank page saying there's nothing, to, <laughs> there's nothing to say, the needs of the moment would call forth uh, some uh, appropriate uh, picture or, or uh, there would be a, um, something that would be, need to, to be expressed. The moment calls forth the, the work of art or the words. And so uh, when we talk about um, uh, a... Um, a Dhamma talk, then even though I came along with a few preparations today, <laughs> it's uh, what makes a Dhamma talk, a Dhamma talk is like an expression of the Dhamma, like the word desana, you say a Dhamma desana. Desana is like the Indian word darshan, it's a demonstration, it's a, a, an embodiment of Dhamma, so that it's really the, uh, the need of the moment, who's gathered there for the, for the occasion, the interest of the people, who the people are, that's what calls forth the words of a Dhamma talk. So a Dhamma talk is also a, an artwork. It's not exactly poetic, uh, in, uh, usually. <laughs> uh, it's not in, in visual form so much, but it's, a, it's also an expression. Also, I found, uh, a, again, speaking of, of my own experience, that uh, I used to write uh, poems quite, quite often, and so uh, reflecting on, on this theme for the day, I, I realized that the the majority of poems that I wrote uh, over, over the years were either uh, trying to clarify a, an insight, something that I was seeing or I was, was uh, exploring in my own life, my practice, kind of putting itself into words. Often it would just start off with a single phrase or a, a, a line or a, a combination of words and then the whole thing was a, would evolve from that. Or sometimes it would be a dream. If I had a, some kind of very potent dream, I think, well, what was that about? And then often the the poems that uh, I've I've written over time would be uh, would be would be based on that. So um, again, not wanting to uh, overindulge uh, myself, I will a little bit. And so again, this uh, with, with this this book, Silent Rain. So I did that 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 book, Tudong, The Long Road North, as the diary of that Tudong walk. And I really enjoyed that. Um, we didn't have a camera with us, but uh, a few people that we encountered uh, had cameras and took pictures. 
Um, I didn't do any of my own drawings uh, for that book, but um, a, uh, a woman called Nancy Sloan Stanley, who was an illustrator, did the, uh, did the drawings for that. Um, so then, uh, but I was also a very junior monk. I'd only been a monk for about five years before I produced uh, Too Long the Long Road North. It was, it was a, a, a year or two after Lumpur Sumato produced his first book. I've always been a bit kind of precocious but at least I produced my first book after Lumpur Sumato did his first book, even though you know, he was the teacher and I'm very much the student. I would sort of, I found myself quite glad to, to put that, that book together, and it was great. Uh, it was very enjoyable actually crafting the book. There was a uh, uh, a company called uh, the Tyneside Free Press in Newcastle. I was, I'd walked from from uh, Chithurst Monastery to Harnham Monastery in Northumberland. And it just so happened one of the uh, supporters of Harnham Monastery in Northumberland was a founder of this, uh, this uh, company called the Tyneside Free Press, which was created in order to help people put their own artworks and poetry and, and, uh, and books into print. And so uh, we, I had the diary uh, of the, that walk and I had the photographs. And then um, this uh, fellow, Eric, Taylor of uh, the Tyneside Free Press said, "Well, you can. Why don't you put it together as a book at the, at the Free Press, and uh, you can uh, you can use the facilities there. We'll teach you how to lay out a book and make the make all the uh, the layout sheets and so forth. And then the art, the the photography people can help you with that, and the the um, the typesetting people can help you with that. So uh, I uh, I didn't paint any of the pictures, but I actually put the whole of that that uh, that book together over a, a three week period. So I got very." Um, familiar with the smell of cow gum. This is when cutting and pasting was actually done with scalpels and what's called cow gum is kind of ad adhesive in the Tyneside Free Press. But I thought, well, I'm, I don't want to be too ahead of myself and since uh, Lumpur Sumato's only just done his first book, I better hold fire on, on the literature for a while. So it was about 10 years between that one and then the, the second one. And so um, anyway, so then... Uh, again, I started teaching in the States. Uh, I was invited to go over and, and teach in America, and people said, uh, you're going to be teaching here, you know, people want to have your, uh, some, some words of yours, some Dhamma talks of yours, have you got any books? And I said, well, there's this book of this Tudong walk that I did. And so uh, one or two people looked at that and said, well, it's very nice, but it's very English. You know, um, you know Americans all want Dhamma talks. You know, could, you put some, could you put some of your Dhamma talks together? Said, okay. So uh, there was um, a few recordings of Dhamma talks, and then somebody said, well, what about some of your pictures? You know, you could do some pictures for that. Said, okay. <laughs> and then also along with doing pictures for illustration for the newsletter or for the rainbows, I used to always make birthday cards for my parents and my sisters for their birthdays. And so I would, um, uh, I would sort of draw pictures and, uh, and uh, make a kind of elaborate cards for them. And then they said, well, why don't we put some of your poems in as well? So okay. <laughs> So this got put together as a kind of compendium of, uh, of travelogues, uh, stories. It was a, a reprint of some of the, um, uh, the Tudong walk through England and then visiting uh, Switzerland, visiting Ireland, um, visiting the, the States for the first time. And so it's sort of travelogues, Dhamma talks, uh, pictures and poems all sort of put together as a, an anthology. So one of the poems uh, in here is... Um, where are we? Um, this was written back in 1981. Also, um, I have been criticised. There, there are quite a few poets in the Sangha. Um, 
there's a collection of, uh, of poetry, um, I think it's called, there's actually a, uh, I think it's, um, there's a little group, it was uh, Ajahn Sujito has published a whole book of poetry, uh, Ajahn Abhinando, the former sister Tania, um, uh, anyway, they have a little sort of poetry enclave, <laughs> and so uh, um, the, uh, uh, the and I think that there's various uh, uh, their poetic works in print that you can track down. But uh, anyway, so um, some of my poems are more in the kind of modern style. Some of mine are more in a sort of classical style. So I have been criticised for having my poems rhyming, which of course <laughs> is sort of sneered at by certain sectors of society having poems with, with rather rumty tum Ajahn <laughs> so that having poems that scan and rhyme is sort of <laughs> not, very, not very chic or, or um, uh, appealing but you know if things come out in a rhyme what are you going to do you know? <laughs> and so uh, the, uh, so I thought I'd, uh, without, I'll shamelessly read uh, one or two of my rhyming poems so this one is called um, self-portrait and um, this was I was uh, living down in Devon before there was a Devon monastery there's a, a couple down there uh, Margaret and Douglas Jones that would invite Sangha members to go and stay at their place they had a little caravan we'd stay in and I spent the rains retreat of 1981 down there with with one Anna Garica. and I go out on long I was learning to recite the monastic rules so I go out every day on the long arms round reciting long strings of, of Pali um, from the monastic rule to, to learn that and uh, up and down the hills through the Devon countryside and then one day the, the, the first line of this um, uh, first two lines of this uh, of this poem sort of sprang into my mind so this is called self-portrait my father is a judge of dogs my sister Katie dislikes frogs my sister Jane is fond of horses a mother dear, well, she of course is an angel who is past compare. And then there's me. But do I dare to claim that I am that or this? And I am swimming in the is. The question is beyond the reach of petty mind, for on the beach of senses beat the endless tides, of births and deaths, the carpet rides, of cherished thoughts and memories, of wives and lives and families. Waves washing in and washing back create a past and future, a sack, backburdening, a being blind and gripping, too intense to find, the architect of all their pain, the singer of the sad refrain, who builds these realms of birth and death, inhaling and exhaling breath, inhaling birth, exhaling death. Confused, incomprehensibly bizarre, clutching waves we think we are, so lost, that we forget the eye of wisdom, which, is, which does not belie the truth of waves and sand and seas, yet is transcendent over these. A song of suchness, clear and bright, the boundless inner peace of light, whose unremitting presence roars, oceanic at its shores. So, what awesome space is this, wherein the wheel revolves, and who the ocean into which this universe dissolves? A subtle thief, the question, who? It burgles with delight. It pockets pain and happiness, then slips into the night, taking all identity and leaving on the light. Taking petty mind up to that watershed beyond which nothing can be said, where, if words were to apply, they would create a you and I, 
a plotter and their plot, abiding at this spot, untouched by anything at all, no dust, nowhere to fall. So that, thank you. So that's one of them. Yeah. Not not all of my poems rhyme, uh, that, but uh, they that kind of it's an interesting process where something just hatches and then woof the whole thing takes shape. And so there was another one, uh, another rhyming one, which is also quite old. Uh, that. Uh, I was sitting on the bench in front of, of Chithurst House. I think it was like today. It was the day after the, uh, the observance day. And um, this was before, uh, in, while we were still fixing up Chithurst House. It was very much a kind of work site. And, and um, I was just, there used to be a wooden bench sitting outside the front of our house looking out over the downs. And, um, uh, and this, whole, uh, this whole poem just sort of boop. <laughs> Yeah, I was literally, I was supposed to be on retreat and I was supposed to be not thinking. You know, as you are, trying to meditate. Okay, don't think, don't think, meditate. You know, watch your breath, watch your breath. But then this whole thing just sort of hatched sort of, uh, and wouldn't stop until it was fully born. So and this one is called The Arahant. The lone remaining wall of a long since fallen house. No more inside, no more outside, no more trespass for the mouse. Where a doorway and five windows allow the winds to pass, unobstructed as they billow through the woods across the grass. Where sun and moon and starshine illuminate the scene for all the folk that pass it by when wandering in the green. I wonder who the person was who built this mighty house that's now a bramble garden and a home for grub and louse. A broken ridge and rafters smashed lie strewn across the floor, and all that stands quite ownerless five windows and a door. So of course you will understand that the, uh, the, the uh, classical image within the, the depiction of the six realms and the dependent origination for the, uh, the senses is a house with five windows and a door. So that was the, that's where that image came from. So anyway, um, the... Uh, <coughs> Not to dwell too much on my own creations, but here's another one. Here's another one I made earlier. So this is a, a, a Buddhist novel called uh, Mara and the Mangala with the subtitle The Killer. And so um, uh, when I was living here uh, in uh, the, uh, uh, between 85 and 95, uh, then uh, during that time, I was uh, uh, the monastery secretary. I did a lot of uh, organizing and was sort of helping Lumpur Sumato, uh, look, uh looking after the administration of this place. So I spent a lot of time um, chatting with him and sort of sorting through various aspects of community life. And uh, in those days, the temple didn't exist. There was the old Dhamma Hall. I'm sure a few of you remember the old, when this was a school, the old school gymnasium. And Lumpur used to live in two rooms at the end of that. So one winter time, he was away traveling for about three months, and he said, um, uh, would you look after my rooms while I'm away? I'm going to be away for three months. Uh, you can, it's a nicer place for you to live, and um, you can look after the place, keep it warm and dry. And so, okay, great. So I was very happy to live in Lumpur's accommodations. It was much better than my own. 
one of the rooms in the Vihara. And then after a, a, a week or two, I noticed on the, I was looking at his bookshelf, being a bookish person, I kind of scanning the bookshelves, and there was a book I'd, I I'd sort of I, I thought was some kind of um, Thai language chanting book or some kind of Thai text because of the script on the spine. And then I realized, oh, that's not Thai. It's kind of Devanagri. Well, why would Lumpur have an, uh, an Indian book? Or is that, is that Devanagri? And I picked it off the shelf and realized, oh, it's actually it's, it's Roman script, but written in a kind of Indian style. And it was an edition of a book called The Pilgrim Karmanita. And it was both the Thai text and the English text. So I started reading and I thought, wow, this is a Buddhist novel. And a Buddhist novel that was written in 1906 in German and then translated into English in 1911. And so I read this and I thought, well, this is a great story. And it was based on the Buddhist scriptures, but also with the author, uh, a, Danish, um, uh, a Danish writer called Karl Gellerup had put this all together as a, a, a tale from the, from the Buddha's time and spanning many different lifetimes, many different realms of existence. But it was a very uh, interesting and beautiful story, very well written, a good page turner. <laughs> Uh, on some very central principles of Buddhist teaching about the attachment to sensuality and the principle of, of awakening and renunciation and uh, enlightenment. And I was amazed at how well the author seemed to understand the Dhamma teachings. So I decided I'd try and make it into more modern English. It was in sort of faux class, fake classical English, so with long sentences about you know, 10 or 15 lines long. <laughs> So I spent a bit of time putting that into more readable English. And then that was published in 1999 um, when we opened the temple. That was, uh, the, we, we printed that as a book to, to circulate. So anyway, cut a long story short, um, I really liked the way that, that Karl Gellerup had put these, the, his own imagination and the Buddha's teachings together. And there also the, I felt there were some loose ends with the, with the story. Firstly, that the, the, the hero had had three children that didn't even get names uh, in the original story. He was married to two different women who, again, didn't even get names in the original story. So I thought, well, that's a bit of an oversight. And what happened to the children? And I was living in the States. A, a Bayagiri monastery had opened by this time in the uh, mid-90s. And, uh, and I was... Uh, pondering this, and I thought, wouldn't it be a good thing to do a follow-up story for the Pilgrim Carmenita to involve the children and to somehow bring in some themes that relate to life in America? So it could talk about racism, it could help to improve the vocabulary of the average American, <laughs> which is surprisingly uh, narrow, shall we say. So it's improve the lexicon of, uh, of American usage. Um, also, I, uh, I thought the, uh, the serial novel, producing a, a novel sort of uh, one chapter at a time, uh, like Charles Dickens published his books as serial novels, I thought the serial novel is, a, is, a, is a, something that needs reviving. So with a few themes like that in mind, I thought, well, maybe one day I will. And then I was having a sabbatical year in India, and I was living in a, a temple in uh, Savati, and uh, and suddenly, the whole story just sort of hatched like that. Like, yeah, my father is a judge of dogs, kind of <laughs> hatched the whole of that um, uh, self-portrait poem. Uh, that sense of hmm. So uh, you've got the three children, the two the two sisters and the brother from different mothers, and then 
then what else have you got? And suddenly the whole story just hatched. So then uh, I started writing it down. <laughs> and uh, here it is. <laughs> so that um, took a, a, quite a, a long time to actually craft the whole thing. And then it didn't get... Uh, 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 it got published on the website when I left the States in 2010, but then it wasn't illustrated. I thought, this book needs illustrations. You know, Like Alice in Wonderland says, what use is a book without pictures in it? So I thought, this needs pictures. And so then uh, Frances Quayle, who was an Anagari car at that time, she was, uh, had uh, done her, uh, some time as an Anagari car, and she was leaving the Sangha, a lot of, uh, mostly because of family difficulties. She wanted to start life as an illustrator. I said, ah, Francis, would you be interested in a small project? So that took uh, several years <laughs> after she left the Anagari car life. But finally, this got hatched, and so this is now um, in print and, uh, and circulated. And so it was uh, speaking of expression. Then, um, uh, again, something that uh, is sort of coming from your own interest or coming from people's... Uh, Say enthusiasm when people read the Pilgrim Carmenita that they said, "Well, what you know, is this the the end of the story?" Or Carl Gellerup died a long time ago. Are there going to be any other stories like this? So again, it's from the interest of people, from your own say working out your own insights, um, and say putting things to, into a form where those who are who can relate to to images, to pictures, to poetry, to stories can be informed and so uh, uh, again without not to blow uh, my own trumpet but I've been pl very pleasantly surprised the people having picked this up and read it say oh this is really good Ajahn and I think really? <laughs> so because uh, uh, there's uh, there aren't um, any, there's nobody else in our Sangha who's actually written a, a novel that I'm aware of <laughs> either before monastic life or during it so I was a bit sort of like, well, I don't know whether this is really going to go down particularly well or this is, whether this is worthwhile. So it's been quite touching to see people moved by that and actually asking for the next volume. You know, does the story continue? And so I feel that if we can relate to our own creativity and in terms of our Dhamma practice, if we relate to it in terms of the world calling something forth, then offering that up as uh, drawn by people's interest. If it's a way of crystallizing something that is formative within us, trying to make sense of some kind of insight or some sort of understanding, then uh, then those those creations, they have a life, they have a value. If it's just me trying to create something because I feel like the, I like the idea of creating something, <laughs> then it, it will never really, uh, it won't have a life to it. That's my experience, and, and it it, um, it won't have that same kind of um, message to communicate. So anyway, uh, these are a few reflections on these uh, these themes, and uh, also I'm very happy to share Ajahn Tito Dhamma's work. Uh, there there is a, a vague plot to try and gather many of his his magnificent drawings together and uh, put them into a, a book. Uh, they I think they had an exhibition of his artwork at Chithurst for. Uh, a year or two ago, but um, it certainly, I would feel, deserves a wider audience. Um, but uh, we can now have a bit of a break, and uh, it's already gone past three o'clock, so let's have a 20-minute break, and then I'll gather back at uh, 3.25 for some discussion and questions.